You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and this week we have a slightly different show to normal. So if you bear with me for a minute, I will explain. Basically, I am doing a series of podcasts for the FFI Practitioner, which is a publication brought to you by the Family Firm Institute. And they have asked that I do a series of interviews with people who are speaking at this year's global conference, which is being held in London from the 24th to the 26th of October. And this week I spoke with Dennis Jaffe. Now, Dennis has been one of the leading architects of the field of family enterprise consulting as both an organizational consultant and clinical psychologist. And he has carried out a study into the factors and features of family firms that have managed to survive for 100 years or more. And there's certain criteria which we get into during the show that these families also have to um, exhibit before they make it into this research. But the purpose of the research is really to look at what family firms have done, how they've done it, in order to survive for a hundred years or more. Now, what I would normally do is I'd provide an episode plan. And then I kind of make it up as I go. I ask a load of questions and depending on the answers um, I get from the guest, um, I tend to ask some different questions that are on the plan. Because this was for the FFI, uh, there was a, a more of a script. So you may notice I'm kind of reading the questions. So uh, I hope that's still um, very useful. There's a couple of times I kind of um, can't resist the urge to, to go off and ad-lib a little bit. Um, but the, the FFI very kindly allowed me to share this interview um, with you as well. I think it's very, very beneficial. Um, there's lots of stuff out there that says this is what a family firm should do. These are the top 10 things that family firms should do to ensure they survive. Here's three succession tips on X, Y, Z. Here's the colour of jumpers that family firms have to wear in order to thrive, that kind of thing. What Dennis is doing with this study is looking at those firms that have been there and done it and they survived for 100 years. And we talk about what that means in terms of survival because they're not necessarily doing what they started out doing now. But there's a number of factors that I think we could all learn from in terms of what it is that helps family businesses to survive and thrive. So I hope you enjoy the interview. It is slightly different. It's a little bit more scripted. Um, I was chomping at a bit a, a couple of times to really dig deep on, on a couple of things and I'm hoping that Dennis will agree to come on to talk about those again. Um, he was very generous with his time. Uh, he was actually in a uh, lodge in the mountains in America somewhere when we first started recording. The internet signal wasn't very good so he said bear with me I'm just going to drive for an hour to go to the um, to the local library so they've got a better Wi-Fi signal so that the, the interview is better. So really, really appreciate Dennis doing that. Um, hope you enjoy it. And that's enough rambling from me. I'll pass you over to the interview. 
So, hi Dennis and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Um, for those of our audience that uh, haven't come across your work before, perhaps you could just give us a brief introduction um, of who you are and what it is that you do. Well, I was um, uh, introduced to the family business field uh, way back in the, um, I think it was the uh, actually the late 70s or early 80s, um, uh, when um, a group of people got together and started saying, maybe there's something that we can learn and that's special about family business. And at, at that, at the early days, um, what people were trying to do is show that family businesses were legitimate. And I think now we're in a period where we're discovering not only are family businesses legitimate and worthy of study, but there's a lot that they can teach to um, non-family businesses. And there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of specialness about family business that we can communicate um, and, uh, and, and, and draw from. Yeah, fantastic. And so I've been, I've been working in the field actually for um, going on 30 years or so. Wow. And um, I have to say that it, it's been it's it's just as exciting now as it was in those early days when people were just figuring out what yeah. what kind of models and what kind of ways to make sense out of family business. Great stuff! And you recently published the fifth working paper from your hundred-year family enterprise study. Um, so can you please tell us a little bit more about the origin and the results of this research project? Um, why do you think a hundred-year family is special and worthy of intensive study? Well, so um, I've been uh, thinking about and wanting to do this for uh, many years. And um, a couple of years ago, when I retired uh, as a professor, I decided it was really now or never. So this is kind of my personal legacy project. And the idea uh, comes from uh, one of my mentors, um, Abraham Maslow, who first coined the idea of peak experience um, and peak performance, mm -hmm. and um, and he um, you know was kind of uh, um, made this <clears throat> the, the statement um, which has really uh, uh, stuck with me that you can't learn anything about mental illness about healthy people by studying mental illness, and I think okay. it's the uh, same about um, family business. You can't learn about healthy, successful family businesses by studying troubled um, family businesses. And so I decided to say, well, where are we going to get the high-performing, um, peak-performing family businesses? And the idea was to study families that um, had moved past the third generation, not just in, in ownership of a business, but in maintaining and sustaining connection as a family. So these were successful families and um, and by family, of course, we don't mean the house individual household, but by the third generation, we mean many households. And 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 in effect, um, these were uh, extended families or or tribes um, uh, made up of many related people. So I decided to uh, to study them. And and in the early in the first phase of the research, I had support from the Family Office Exchange and the Family Business Network, and both of them allowed me to contact families and to uh, um, and help me define what I wanted to study. Um, and then in the last um, three or four years, um, the last three working papers have been sponsored by, um, with the support of Merrill Lynch and U.S. Trust. And so I'm really grateful to have um, that kind of support to help me get in touch um, with these 100-year families. 
So the families that we studied, again, had three criteria. There were three criteria. Um, one is they had to have um, been together as, a, uh, as an enterprising or business family for three generations or more. Um, and secondly, they had to have an identity and a connection as a family. They can't be a bunch of strangers who happen to be related. They're a connected family. And third, they're, they're large, and um, um, we, we said over $200 million in net worth, and, and m- most of the families in the study are much, uh, much higher um, net worth. Mm-hmm. And they come from about 20 families, so it's a global study, and uh, we're now um, approaching 100 families. We, we interview, there's a group of us that uh, have been uh, doing the interviews. We interview two members uh, of a family, um, from two different generations who are family leaders, and um, we transcribe the interviews and we use the uh, the, the, the uh, interview as um, as our database. So we have now yeah. a database of just about a hundred families, um, and um, the research, the working papers, kind of delve into their stories and share their wisdom. Yeah, I think that's an important point because your research is based on the stories from the interviews rather than, say, survey data. And your focus is on the family rather than the business. So can you tell us a bit about your approach to narrative research and why you took this part? Yeah, well, narrative research is is um, interviews and, and kind of talking directly um, with people. And I noticed in surveys that you had, for example, people would say, well, um, 60% of the families had a family office um, or a family council or a family constitution uh, or foundation. But the question is, what does this mean? How did it arise? How did they do it? And, and there's so many different ways to do it and so many different meanings for these uh, terms that uh, the idea is to, that, that surveys can give us data about presence of something or um, uh, you know, give us some impressions but that the really learning about how these things happen, what they were like, what effect they had, what they were, um, what they were doing in these areas, how these related to each other, um, that can only be, um, you can only get that from an interview. So um, in the last um, five years, I've had the pleasure of um, talking with members of um, all of these families. And what I ask them is their evolution and their stories. How did they get started? How do they go through generations? What kinds of crises come up? How do they overcome them? Um, and, and how, not just what they did, but how do they do what they do? And how does it, uh, how does it feel? And how do they experience it? So um, it's, uh, it's story-based uh, narrative research. And it, there's a lot of richness there. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to draw conclusions, but we can look at themes and look at, um, look at them over generations. The other um, thing that, that we decided is, is that, that, that we, family business are two words. They're families and they're businesses. And a lot of the research is looking at the business and the family is involved in the business, but the, it, where they're looking at the arc of the business. Mm-hmm. We're studying families. And um, that means that, that the family um, can go through one business, uh, very often many businesses, um, investments, shared assets, um, the family invo- evolves over generations, and our focus is we're looking at families that have evolved over three uh, or more generations in with shared assets and shared enterprise. So we're looking at what's now being called enterprising 
families rather than a family business or a family that has a business. Fantastic. And in the beginning of the research, you challenged the pervasive theory that family businesses face a predestined decline across three generations, otherwise known as the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Um, how does your research of generative families aim to challenge this myth? Well, by definition, we're looking at families that did not go shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And we know that a lot of uh, there aren't a lot of those families, but um, those families are doing something. And, and what we're finding is that a lot of the mythology about um, uh, family business is, is, not, um, is not really accurate and doesn't really tell us about what it's like to get into the third generation. So these are families that have overcome many obstacles in order to be in the three, five, how, whatever percentage it is of families that, that make it into the third um, generation. And we see a number of things um, about them that, 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 that are uh, important. One is that it isn't about one business. Um, more than half of these families have sold their legacy business or bought other businesses and they've diversified and they've gone in different directions and their businesses have failed and their businesses um, have gone through crises and they've reinvented themselves. So um, the, the, the overriding thing, I think, is that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves is not um, doing one or two things right. It's really being able to improvise and really having a deep commitment to renewing and um, redefining who they are. And um, as we um, look at them, we see that there are a lot of um, things that they do that are, that are very, very special and um, are not just how to survive as a family business, but but good things to do um, in terms of developing a vital family and developing a good business. Mm. And reflecting on your research, what do you believe are the most important indicators or factors that influence whether a family enterprise can survive beyond three generations? Well, in, in the research, we're, we're beginning to see um, from all these interviews and all this wisdom, a couple of, um, a couple of themes and practices that uh, boil up and we're kind of, you know, taking the kind of uh, um, doing the kind of uh, process that was used in the good to great research in the search for excellence, which is to kind of gather a lot of data and then look for the themes that emerge. A couple of themes that emerge um, that are very, very, um, very, very common. And I think also very, very special. They're common to these hundred families, but they're not common in family business or business in general. And here, mm -hmm. here's a couple of them that have come up. One is that they, they have a, a core purpose and a set of values. And those values are not rigid and the purpose is not um, rigid. It really evolves, but the, the values are the same, but the values, how, they're, uh, how the family does it evolves. They really share a purpose and they, they reaffirm that purpose together each generation. Um, and each generation reinvents the business. Uh, there's a lot of engagement, and this is one of the things that we see. The older generation is involved with the younger generation. The older generation is listening to the younger generation. The younger generation is learning from the older generation, and actually they're learning from each other. Um, another um, thing that comes up is that these families are not doing family governance and family activities just to create great business. What, what they find is that because they're successful as a family business and because they've done something and created wealth, they make an investment and a commitment to the family. 
So they, they, they kind of talk about how, well, what we're doing with the money that we've made, one of the things that we do with our wealth that's important to us because of our values is that we want to create a great family. And a great family means people that are high performing, people that are doing what they love, people that are being productive, people that are doing important things, and that the family is doing things together. They're not a bunch of individuals. They're really an interdependent group that is able to resolve conflict and, and deal with differences and grow. Um, they're, uh, they're able to be resilient. And we see in the families that there is a couple of transformations um, that are common. They, they sell the business. They move on to other areas. They go into multiple businesses. They become more global. And um, there's a continual reinvention, which means that the older generation has to be, continue to be learning. And so in the resilience is a, is a process of each generation learning some new things and reinventing itself. And um, there's, a, um, there's a, a, a real commitment and an active practice in the family to develop the next generation. There's transparency. There's teaching about the business. They get together. They often have annual um, summer meetings and summer camps. They have education programs. They, have, um, they bring family members in to be board observers and learners. They create um, uh, ways of supporting family members um, through family bank and other kinds of ways of investing in the ideas of, uh, of many family members. And they have a great social, shared social commitment. They create a foundation. They give back to the community. They um, extend and respect the people that have worked with them for generations and the people that are loyal to them. They're loyal back. And so there's a real sense, not just of it's us in the family against everybody else, but that our family includes the people that have worked for us, the people that we serve, the community that we live in, the idea of family and what, what uh, responsibility really grows in circles that are wider and wider. So these are things, and these, aren't, these are things that people suspected, but by interviewing and talking with 100 global families, we see that these things actually exist. These are things yeah. that the family does. They're not just checking a thing in a, in a survey. They're actually doing these things, and they can tell us how they work and how hard they are, not, not, how, uh, not just how wonderful they are. Yeah, so um, we, we really have some themes and some best practices that are emerging very, very clearly from uh, all this diversity. Yeah, and I'm guessing as well from the uh, the fact that you're interviewing the families as well. If a family business is looking at okay, what what is it that makes other family businesses successful, and they're going down this checklist of okay, we have uh, a values. Uh, we've agreed on our values. We've agreed on our purpose. If it's treated like that tick box exercise that that um, you often see on checklists, these are these are things that successful family businesses have. If it's treated as a, as a tick box exercise, it, it's perhaps not as effective as you're saying in in the work that you're finding with the interviews. Is that they have values, but the way that they operate and the way that they um, deal with those evolves to to make sure that they remain relevant. Rather than going in the drawer, right. for mean, example. Yeah, it, it, it's like um, I, I see all these surveys and, you know, like family businesses, you know, want to develop better communication or they want to prepare the next generation for leadership. And they say all those things. But the question is, what are they doing and how is the experience of trying to do it and building a program and building a, a practice in that 
um, leading them to success. So, for example, when people, families talk about having a family council, they often say, well, we tried it once and it was a big bust and we just started fighting with each other. And then we tried it again two years later or the next generation grew up and they said, we want to do this better. We want to do it the right way. And so um, many and many things that they evolve come up in stages and over generations and they don't just burst in and say, okay, we're doing a family council. Let's do one, two, three. Now we have the council. Now we're having meetings. It's, uh, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in your working paper, you introduce the concept of a generative alliance that carries the family successfully across generations. Can you explain what you mean by this term and how balancing the influence of all three stakeholder groups allows the well, family the current, to be adaptive yeah, and resilient? Working, the current working paper is about um, the um, resilience of families, the business side of families over um, the three generations, and it's in a working paper. And just to give a little commercial, the working papers are all available on Amazon in print editions and um, on um, uh, electronic editions. Fantastic. So the current one about how do these businesses evolve and what is resilience? What does it mean to be resilient? And um, in reading and looking through the data for this uh, working paper, we, we, we noticed that there were three big stakeholder groups that are exist in every long-lasting um, family, multi-generational family. One um, is there's the voice and the, and the values and the wisdom of the elders. The elders, the older generation, are uh, people who um, have uh, really been successful and they've contributed a lot, but um, as they get older, the new gener- they, they, there are things that they don't know and things that they need to learn, but the, the values and the wisdom is something that, that's the legacy of the family. That's the, the elder uh, generation's legacy is really, really the core. Then there are, there are two um, other constituencies and two other themes that we see. And um, what I see in a lot of the, the business literature is that they either study one or the other, but they don't really um, deal with the fact of how do these two come together. And we call these um, the strand of the, the craftsmen and the opportunists. The craftsmen are the professionals, the advisors, the non-family members, the people that really have built the business and and built an enterprise where the family does something really well. So Mm -hmm. they do it so well, they create a product, they create um, something that really endures over generations. And um, there's a lot of literature about how the family business has to professionalize and go from family first to business first and and not... uh, and, and bring family members in that are skilled and bring in non-family members. And this is the, the craftsman um, uh, orientation, um, which is the second part of the generative alliance. It's the professionals who make the business great, who make the business um, high, high quality, make the things that the family does really, really professionally successful and creating wealth. But that's not all there is to it. These people that are the craftsmen are not sometimes highly innovative. They're not taking the family in new directions. And so we find that the craftsmen, the legacy, um, and there's a third um, uh, part of the generative alliance, which is the new energy, the entrepreneurial energy, the opportunism, the, um, the desire of the, the, the new generation, third generation, fourth generation to make their mark, the, uh, the way that they're, they're learning new things that the older family members don't 
new and seeking new opportunities. And this is the opportunism of the next generation, entrepreneurial behavior, willingness to sell a business and move on to something else, willingness to start new ventures, go in new directions. And so the generative alliance is the, um, is the balancing of the wisdom and the values of the older generation, the professional um, experience of craftsmen and their commitment, and the uh, entrepreneurial energy of new generations and, um, and um, rising um, generations of young people who are um, learning new things and bringing new things into the family. And that generative alliance is characteristic of pretty much um, uh, almost all of our families and, and is a way of thinking of how, uh, how does resilience work itself out in, um, in the family, uh, family enterprise. How are they resilient? Yeah. Fantastic. And how, how do you believe external factors such as increased globalization, reliance on technology might impact the future of family business? And do you believe that family businesses are comparably better suited to confront these challenges than, say, non-family counterparts? Well, he- here's, here's what uh, I think is this reason why family businesses have a special advantage in, in this, they, uh, they have a younger generation and the younger generation are getting educated very often in other countries. They travel, they grow up with a global experience. They grow up uh, as digital natives with technology and, um, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a social commitment that leads them to look at all kinds of new opportunities. So in the family business, because they have this young generation, that isn't formally, um, they're not in formal uh, uh, roles, they're not leaders, but they're, they're upcoming leaders. The family has a situation where they listen and learn from these people. And so the, um, the successful global families very often say, we, uh, we learned this from our um, grandson who um, went to a program or learned yeah. about this. And, um, and uh, so, so the, there's a way in which the, um, the, the new generation uh, has a voice in the family in a way that, that um, some uh, non-family businesses don't have any voice for innovation and voice for change. And so they, they find it very hard sometimes to change and adapt. And um, they, they, they kind of get stuck in doing what they do. And sometimes the company can go from being really successful to uh, losing it with a new technology or not being able to take advantage of, uh, of, of change. And the study indicates that as a family enterprise professionalizes its governance systems by bringing in outside professionals and independent directors, the family can lose involvement in the business, creating family passivity and lack of development. How can families best adapt to this new ownership role while maintaining the familiness of the business that gives it that competitive advantage? Well, the family creates, creates a culture, and um, I think the professionalization is necessary because businesses are more and more um, accountable and facing more and more pressures. Uh, as they grow over generations, they can't just continue to do things the way they do. So the family, uh, most of the families, um, uh, with some you know, very powerful exceptions, experienced, uh, had, had, a, had, a, had a transition where they move from being owner operators as they were in the first generation, maybe the second generation, and then and then um, they shift to being um, stewards 
uh, overseers. And, um, and this is not something that just any family member can do. To be a steward of a billion-dollar business or a set of investments um, that, are, that, that, that are many, many, many millions of dollars, the family members have to be, in effect, professional stewards. They have to be, um, learn how to be board members. They have to learn how to analyze new opportunities. They have to um, create an attractive environment and a culture to bring in talented people outside the family to use the resources that they have. And this is a professionalization from being professional managers to being professional stewards and, um, and uh, visionaries in, in bringing the family together. And, um, and this is done by, um, in the family by having a focus on education, focus on development, a kind of a mentoring of young people, teaching them the values, inviting them to make a contribution to the family and inviting them to say, you have ideas about the future. You have ideas. We will listen to them. We may not take them uh, whole, you know, adopt them immediately and, and uh, unquestioningly, but we will um, allow you to have a voice and to step into the business appropriately and begin to help us go in new directions. And so these families have close families and they create a culture of family that really um, uh, vitalizes the business by having a purpose and values and a, and a kind of a continuity and, a, um, and kind of ways of, um, of doing things that are, um, uh, that are meaningful and exciting, the familyness becomes what people have called the family advantage, an advantage of um, the family has in being resilient, in taking action, in being able to change and not get stale um, because the new leadership comes up and challenges the old leadership, um, uh, and sometimes appropriately. Sometimes um, prematurely, but the family begins to work those things out. Yeah. And historically, some studies have viewed the family's decision to sell their legacy company as the end of the family business. However, your research seems to counter this characterization, instead viewing the sale of the legacy company as a transformation, leading generative families to a new beginning. Can you please expand on what your research shows about the sale of the company? or about how the sale of the company can be more akin to a harvest than the end of a family business? Well, this is something that, that started to crop up in the research in the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It said, well, the business ends or the business, um, go, it goes out of business, um, and that's a failure. And when you look at these families, what you see is that no business lasts in the same way over two or three generations. So um, the, when we look at the, um, uh, these three-generation family enterprises, we see that, first of all, more than half of them have sold the family business. And those that haven't, um, they found ways to take money out of the business, what um, we call harvesting, and to take the wealth and create, put it into new directions, into um, other kinds of investments, into entrepreneurialism, into social enterprise, into foundations and, and, and philanthropy. And um, so the harvesting process is is about um, moving beyond the business. Um, when a family sells the business, it's, it's an upheaval. It's a source of identity. It's something that they've done. And particularly if it's a two or three generation business, the decision to sell it is, um, is, a, is a big watershed moment for the family. Some families say, okay, let's take our money and everybody, you know, take your check and go uh, in your own direction and we'll have family 
uh, reunions every couple of years, but basically we're not a family enterprise anymore. But the people in our study say, we've sold the family business. This is a big change in our identity. Let's see, let's look at our values and let's see what we can do with this wealth to um, make a new commitment, to make, um, to, to create, um, express our values in different ways and, and to create a new sense of connection, um, which may not be for everybody. And so these um, families go from selling the business or taking money out of the business, investing in new businesses and new ventures, creating a portfolio of assets, um, including things like a foundation um, and a family office, and, um, uh, and, and going through some process where they find a way to ground a new identity um, outside of just the single business into uh, another way of seeing who we are as a family is not this particular business, but it's something else. And that that has to be invented and the the new generation has to get on board and decide we want to be together because we can do more together, more wonderful things together when we're aligned than we can by each individual going their own way. Yeah, and this is something that um, in previous episodes of the um, podcast uh, I've spoken about in terms of um, moving from a family business to a business family. And that, that mindset shift of it doesn't have to necessarily be the widgets that we're selling this week mm-hmm. is the business that we then um, pass on to the next generation. It can be that they do take the, um, the wealth that's been created or the opportunity that's been created within the family business to, to go and make something other than widgets and, and, and adapt. But retaining those values is, is important to that, I guess. And, um, and so family members have to say, well, um, so... We have a new generation and they're doing new things. They all want to go off individually or is there some value in the family supporting these new ideas or supporting them to buy new businesses, to become uh, more socially, uh, social investment oriented, um, to do things together. And, um, and this is a choice. It isn't one way is right, one way is wrong. The family has to decide that being together is more important than, um, than, than going off and to decide um, when they sell the business to keep their assets together, to create a family office, to create new directions for the family. Mm. Yeah, and that leads on to to my next question, actually, which is how important do you believe it is to the long-term success of these generative families to offer family members the ability to exit from the ownership of the company? Well, this was one of the things that that, um, came out loud and clear in, in our um, uh, 90-some families, not one of those families after the third generation contains all of the biological family members. Uh-huh. Every family has had a situation where one family, one family branch, um, one um, a group um, of family members are, um, take the op- opportunity to exit the family. So these families become what my um, a colleague Jay Hughes calls families of affinity rather than families of blood. Um, the blood family may have 150 or uh, 550 members, but the business family, the people that are, um, that are at doing in enterprise together may be um, two-thirds of them and maybe one-third of them, but the family begins with uh, everybody um, having the free choice in each generation about whether they want to stay in. Because if they don't have a free choice, 
these uh, uh, the families will have a sense of uh, that they're imprisoned together, that they, uh-huh. they have all this wealth, they uh, might say, but, but we, we don't really um, have a common purpose or we don't really um, uh, you know, want to be partners. And so uh, what we find in these hundred families is that there's always an option of um, some family or some individuals can cash out and go their own way. And this is an important safety valve. And, and most of the families, um, while the blood relatives can grow um, into very, very huge numbers um, by the fourth generation, the business family, the family members that are um, working together as a family enterprise are, um, uh, don't include everybody. Mm. Great, thank you. Um, your research indicates that 72% of the families you interviewed for this study utilized a family office. What do you see as the proper role of a family office in facilitating multi-generational family business success? And why do you believe these generative families prefer a single family office over, say, a multi-family office? Well, this is one of the things that, that we see that the, to think we consider the family office as a kind of a stage of development of the enterprising family. And it comes about when either they begin to take money out of the legacy business and have other investments, or they sell the legacy business and, and remain together through the shared investments of a family office. Um, and a family office is something that, that uh, is not just an investment vehicle for the family, but it's a, it's a holder of the family identity. It's a way for the family to get together through uh, governance and board meetings and talking about investments and having a family foundation. So the family office is a kind of a, a stage of development for most of these families as they move into the second, third, or, um, or fourth generation. Um, one of the things that was in- interesting and I think was a question um, was we say, well, why do these families prefer, um, tend to prefer a single family office rather than a multi-family mm. office? Yeah. And remember, these are, first of all, these are big families. Most of them are in the billion dollar um, or greater range. And, um, um, and so they can afford a family business, mm-hmm. a family office. Yeah. And the family office um, is, is something that, that is it's clearly something that costs more to have a single family office than a uh, multi, than be part of a multi-family office. Now, some of them, um, and and why do they want to keep a single-family office? Um, the families that have one, they say, well, well, it isn't just an investment group. This is a place. It's a clubhouse. Having a family office is a place where family members can come together. It's a place where they can get help from non-family advisors, where they can. Um, share ideas, do education together, learn together, do, um, um, uh, and, and, and so there are many things that a family office does to um, uh, maintain the identity of the family. Some of the families um, go on an interesting path where they have a single family office and it's very, very professional, it's very experienced, and so they begin to say, well, let's invite some other families that share our values that, that, that we like, that we know, and let's create a multifamily office around our family office. And so some of the families have uh, done that. But the, but the family office is, a, uh, is not just an investment vehicle for these families, but it's a, um, it's, it's a place for development of human capital. It's a place for social commitment. It's a place for shared learning. 
And, um, and these are all things that, that are um, possible in a uh, family office and uh, allow these families to maintain and develop their identity and their, their broad commitments mm. in society. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, and what result coming out of the study surprised you the most and why was that? Well, it was, it's just been an incredible um, uh, opportunity to, to sit down and talk with um, usually two members of two different generations for nearly 100 global families. And we're not stopping here. We're really continuing to interview and continuing to develop this research and this, this data bank and, um, and to continue to learn from these families. But um, uh, first thing I think that, that jumps out to me is the vitality of these families because they're families. They're, they're not just businesses, they're families. And they're, um, as, as I said earlier, they're not household families, they're tribal families, they're extended families. And um, in, in a world that um, is becoming more global, um, I find that these families um, can maintain and sustain their vitality, even if they, for example, live in, in different countries around the world. Um, I've had uh, seen family members convene, family meetings convene, where people come from um, two or three continents um, and get together in some central place. So the vitality of family and the way in which these family enterprises are really, really serious about the development of the skills, the wisdom, the um, experience, the values of, of each new generation is, uh, is very, very striking. Um, another thing that's striking is that the growth over generations of a connection to a wider community. These families, um, they talk about sustainability. They, they talk about social commitment. They see that the, their commitment is not just to their own enrichment as family members, but to family uh, employees, to people in the community, to suppliers, customers. They, they have a view of family where, in a way, they take family as a circle of blood relatives, and they say, well, we're, we're defining it more broadly. Um, we believe that uh, family, um, our family is, is the whole community that we grew up in. Uh, our family is, is the whole world. Um, because they have a sense, a long-term commitment, and, um, and these, these families are, um, are saying that we are, we're creating this not just for our generation to enjoy, but we're stewards in the, in the sense that we feel an obligation to uh, even though we're enjoying our wealth and enjoying our business, we want to be able to deliver it intact and with value to our children, to our grandchildren. So um, by looking to the future, this means that they have to be asking themselves, well, if we're rich and um, the planet can't support us anymore, um, what's the point? Mm -hmm. So um, these families seem to have a great sense of social values and each new generation um they grow up with wealth they grow up saying we've uh, been successful in business and when they begin to say well what can we do in the third generation to that that's meaningful and they begin to take on um social projects and social commitments um and and i think the other thing um that these families do is um, they're not unified they become unified they become aligned they share values the process is difficult, and they're able to overcome conflict. There's significant um, conflict sometimes between branches 
they're across generations. And these families, um, they don't fragment and they don't split up because of it. They're able to kind of work these things through. And this is where the generative alliance comes in. They create alignment among a lot of very, very diverse people. And they appreciate the wisdom coming in from people that marry in, from new generations, um, from each um, families, uh, each of the different branches, and they bring it all together. And they, 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 they're living every day with conflict, but not negative, destructive conflict, but productive conflict where they uh, engage each other and work these things through and, and come up with a, um, something really powerful uh, in, in terms of where they're going and, and what they're doing. Thank you, Dennis. That's a fascinating insight into uh, your research. Um, where can our audience find out a little bit more about you? Well, I have a website, um, DennisJaffe.com. The research is um, under the auspices of a, um, of a think tank group called Wise Council. And Wise Council um, contains a number of, of people that are doing research into uh, um, generativity and the vitality and the values of families, and so Wise Council is a place where uh, people can learn about us. and And the working papers are all published um, on Amazon in the uh, in uh, print editions and uh, um, and uh, electronic editions. And so there are five working papers um, that they can um, look up on Amazon or through my website um, or Wise Council's website. Fantastic. And what we'll do is we'll link those up in the show notes to That's point great. people um, in, uh, in that direction and uh, they can get in touch um, if, uh, if they want to do so. Mm-hmm. But once again, thank you very much for your time. It's been, uh, it's been great talking to you about that and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you for the opportunity to share what I'm passionate about. Take care. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.